Please return with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We began considering this chapter last Lord's Day evening, and we looked previously at the first ten verses, and now this evening we turn our attention to the remainder of the chapter where Christ Jesus brings us another picture of something that is lost, specifically two sons. So we'll pick up reading in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. And we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Hear the word of God. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet... You have never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Amen. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we're so thankful for this wonderful picture of being lost and then being found. We pray, Lord, that you'll teach us through it and that you'll take all the glory. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a quotation from the early 20th century, sometimes attributed to Mark Twain. It's incredibly insightful, clever. I want particularly uh, any young people to hear it uh, this, this evening. There are different versions, but here's a common one. He says, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Point obviously is that that's a reflection more on himself than, and, and his own ignorance and pride rather than anything to do with his father. He was maturing. You see, every generation, I, I suggest, seems to want to be free from the shackles and restrictions of the previous generation. They look down on that previous generation. They want to be free. They now know best. They've now been finally enlightened. I can live how I like. You've got no right to tell me otherwise. Seems to happen generation after generation. You see, this is a generation who does not want to be judged or shamed or guilted into being who they do not want to be, like Sinatra. They want to do it their way. Half of the Disney songs today seem to push these themes. It's an attitude that says, I want to live life my way, the way that I want. And you have no right to tell me otherwise. Neither does your God, neither does your holy book. We're living in a generation who claim to be tolerant, where we should accept always Everyone else, how they live, what they believe. But as we've seen demonstrated, it quickly ends up being intolerance when anybody makes a, a real truth claim or disagrees with you. People want you to rejoice and have pride with them in whatever choice they make with their lives. Well, my friends, the message of Jesus Christ in our passage this evening is the opposite of the world's attitude. Jesus is saying to you, and the people of this world, you are lost. You are wrong. You are on the wrong track. Jesus is saying to people, you should not be proud of the way you naturally are. Or certainly come to him how you are, but he's not going to leave you there. He's going to change you to be more like himself. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. He says, it is misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. Rather, He accepts us despite the way we are. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake. Nor does He mean to leave us the way He found us, but to transform us into the likeness of His Son. That's what being a Christian does. Becoming a Christian does. It changes you. Elsewhere he says, a person who has no interest 
in being changed by Christ has no interest in being saved by Christ. Christianity and true conversion to it does not leave you with the pigs. It's supernaturally transformative. The message of Jesus shows you your desperate position as a sinner, a lost person, as an enemy of God, living your own way. But the message of this parable is that Jesus can help. Only He can help. And He's willing and able to do that. And the result then is a change of heart where you now want to do the will of the Father. You want to become more like Christ. You want to leave that old life behind. What of some background? Well, we saw in verses 1 to 10 that there were two stories about a lost sheep and a lost coin. Good shepherd, diligent woman. And that looked at salvation from the perspective of God. The coin and the sheep do nothing. They're helpless. And we see the love and the sacrifice and the dedication of those searching until those things were inevitably found. And now we move on to a similar but a different picture, different narrative, which we'll work our way through this evening. So look from verse 11 with me as we consider the background and context. And perhaps a fair question is, is Jesus just belaboring the point here? We get it. We're lost. We need to be found. We need to be saved. Why do we need a third parable to, to tell us this? Well, there are overlapping themes, of course, but Jesus doesn't waste words. We learn so much more about ourselves, about the wonder of salvation. We look at that diamond from a different angle. This evening, we learn so much more about God Himself in this story with so much depth of, of meaning. It looks at the picture of salvation now from the human point of view, from your perspective. It's important to note that our theology, though, doesn't change here. Salvation still remains all of Christ from beginning to end. We contribute nothing. We bring nothing other than our sin and our need. And yet you can go around the room probably tonight and, and ask people their individual experiences. Tell us your testimony. Tell us how God worked through different means and different people so that in His sovereignty, they were used to bring you to Himself in repentance and faith. What we have here is a heartbreaking story from Jesus of a, of a broken relationship. But you see, it's a double message. Even when we think about the title, we may need to modify our thinking. It's usually presented it's the heading in my um, Bible as well, the prodigal son. And we focus on the prodigal, the one who runs away. But with others, I see this as an amazing story about two lost sons. Notice in verse 11, even Jesus himself, he draws our attention to both. A man had two sons. And so perhaps we could call it the parable of the loving or the forgiving father or the parable of the two lost sons. And we saw last week, didn't we, where, where Jesus is not just talking to those so-called sinners with these parables. 
The key here is in the context. The key is who and what is Jesus addressing? Who's he talking to when he's telling this parable? Three main characters, all in verse 11. A man, a father, representing God himself, and then those two brothers, a younger and an older son. And you remember at the start of this chapter, we see exactly who they represent. Look again at verses 1 and 2. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He mentions those two groups of people, the the sinners and the tax collectors, and the, the Pharisees and the scribes. I want you to imagine these two groups listening as Jesus tells this this story as we proceed through, and perhaps then we can understand the reactions. And in verse 1, we saw that first group of tax collectors and, 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 and sinners, the younger brother, the, the prodigal. Remember, Jesus is presenting this from the view of the common man. These scribes and Pharisees look down on this group. These are the really bad people. It's obvious. And actually, we're going to see in a minute wild, sinful living. In a sense, they'd they'd left home. They don't follow the law in the right way. Obviously, they've walked away from God. They're not part of respectable society. At least that's the way the other group would see them. So the other group, the second group in verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes, they're, they're the elder brother. They're the religious men. They proudly held to the rules. They're the ones that are seen as morally upright. They're the ones we have to follow. They're the ones who study. They're the ones who obey Scripture. Well, they thought they did. These men, these religious leaders, maybe they're a little bit like some religious leaders we have today, perhaps even in the general Christian church. Religious but there's something so wrong. We we started to see hints of that last week because there's hypocrisy. And we see the opposition that Jesus and and others have towards them. Listen to John the Baptist. He addresses them in Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John didn't water this down. Jesus held nothing back. He called them vipers. He called them blind guides and hypocrites and worse. And in the first two parables, he was showing these religious leaders what a true shepherd should be. How they should view the lost as valuable, even if they consider themselves among those safe 99 sheep. Reading Zechariah chapter 10 recently, and it says in verse 2, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. 
See, these religious leaders are the ones that should have been shepherding the people, bringing the good news to the people. But they weren't. They'd lost the plot. And that's the reason for the righteous anger that we find against them. It was a mess of a system. The truth was they were not safe in the 99 sheep like they thought they were. They too were equally lost, but with a false assurance that they were safe because of their religiosity, because of their works. And so this parable, the parable of the two lost sons, addresses this head on, and Jesus skillfully brings both groups in here before he drops the application on them. It challenges them all. It's interesting to note in verse 1 that our first group, as we noted last week, these tax collectors and sinners are the ones drawing near to him. It's a pattern of his ministry. These younger brother types, these sinner types, flocked to listen to him. And that made the religious leaders angry, those older brothers. They didn't like Jesus, generally speaking. They didn't believe him. They're trying to get rid of him, ultimately by killing him. And in verse 2, summarizes their complaint, which we noted last time. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that, in that culture, it signifies acceptance. How dare Jesus do this? Well, the truth is that Jesus came to save sinners of all stripes, all varieties, all the lost, not, not ever joining them in their sin, but to free them from it. Another occasion, back in Matthew chapter 2, it says, And it happened that while he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. This is habitual, following. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, the 99 sheep, they think they're in that group, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. But the truth is they're not healthy either. And it angers the, the, the moral, the religious types such as these Pharisees and teachers. It's happened on so many occasions. And so generally, we can, we can say that religiously observant people were offended by Jesus. These are the jot and tittle theologians of the day. Missing the mark, though. But those sinner outcast types were intrigued, were attracted to him. In fact, in Matthew 21, verse 31, Jesus says this to the religious leaders. Imagine this, the reaction Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Simply not on. They can't accept this. And so these are the three characters in our story as Jesus hammers home to his hearers this message to all lost people, whether religious or not. Who is Jesus really telling this parable to or for? To the so-called sinners in this group? Yes. But it's also to the second group because it's in direct response to their attitude that Jesus tells these three parables. 
Bad people know they're bad. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had told them that many times. But the religious people who thought that they were good had in fact wandered far from God. Once again, turning things on their heads, saying you've got it all wrong. As we'll see as we now move to look at the the parable. Let's get into the story. And I want to break this up just into two simple points this evening. But with three people in those two points. The first point is this, the distant son. The second point, the deceived son. But within both of these stories is the third thing I want you to see, and that's the devoted father. So first, in verses 11 through 24, the distant son. We could have used disrespectful. You see, Jesus first uses the story of the younger son to challenge the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes. Imagine you're in that crowd listening. The Pharisees and and scribes are sitting on one side or standing on one side. The tax collectors and, and other sinners in that category on the other. And he begins with this typical family. Pretty well off from what we see in the passage. There are rings and robes and fattened calves and servants and and other things like that. But what hits us straight away is this shocking and disrespectful request from the younger son in verse 12. He wants his inheritance. Deuteronomy 21 tells us the rules for that, that the older son receives twice as much. He has to keep the the family business going, keep the, the farm together, all of those kind of things. And so the younger son makes his foolish and irresponsible request for his slice of the pie. And it goes against honoring your father and mother in the fifth commandment. And you can imagine that crowd sitting there thinking, what? This just doesn't happen. He's due it, but only when his father died. He wants it now. Some suggest he could be almost wishing his father was dead at this point. He wants his father's things, but not his father. He's an inconvenience. He's a barrier. And I wonder, those younger ones among us, there are some who can't wait to leave home. He'd planned it all out. Finally got freedom. No more parental restraints. I can do what I want. Shows some immaturity, doesn't it? But later he remembers the faithfulness of his father. And so young people don't make this mistake. Sin is a hard master. As Jesse Ryle puts it, So there are lessons here applicable to to family, but that's not the main thrust of this parable. It's it's all about eternal salvation. And you can imagine those self-righteous teachers of the law, the scribes, the, the Pharisees, thinking, what a stupid request, but what a stupid father for granting it. I want my share of the property, my share of the estate in verse 13. And then in verse 13, it says he got together all he had. There's no intention of ever returning here. And his father does divide everything and gives the portion requested to the son. So it's a shocking request, but it's also a shocking response. John MacArthur suggests that in the culture of the day, there'd then be a funeral because he's as good as dead to them. Then we see a transition 
as we follow the ups and downs of the son with his newfound wealth, and he goes off and, and wastes everything. He's, about, he's, he's out of control. He's, he's reckless with this wild living. And if we believe the older brother later, who may be somewhat biased, he wastes it on prostitutes sinfully. Matthew Henry tells us to note the great folly of sinners, and that which ruins them is being content to have their portion in hand. Now, in this lifetime, to receive their good things. They look only at the things that are seen, that are temporal, and covet only a present gratification, but have no care for a future felicity when that is spent and gone. Just looking at now, today, what can I get? And this young man found that as any child in a school playground holding a bag of candy, they're quickly discovered, don't they? All the while, there's something in the bag, they've got friends. But when his money ran out, they quickly disappear. And then we come to a turning point. Verse 14, he's about to come to his senses through adversity. I wonder if God used hardship in your life to drive you to him. That's not uncommon. Money is gone. Friends disappear. Then there's a famine. He began to be in need while everything was going well for him. Maybe he thought he was doing okay. But then when his money ran out, circumstances got worse. He seems to realize that he caused this mess. Verse 15, he did find work. He's reduced to feeding pigs for Gentiles, non-Jews. Ends up in the mud. Matthew Henry says, this is every one of us in our natural state. Elsewhere he says, sinners are wretchedly and miserably poor. And what aggravates it? They brought themselves into that condition and keep themselves in it by refusing the supplies offered. This young man is spiritually bankrupt. Isaiah 55, 2, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy. This is the opposite of the thinking of the world today. Ezekiel 7.19 They will fling their silver into the streets and their gold will become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite nor can they fill their stomachs for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. You have to remember to consistently come back out of this story. Return to those people listening to it the first time. Real people in that crowd that day. And you can imagine the disgust on the faces of the Pharisees and scribes. These religious and pure and clean people as Jesus came to this part of the story with these unclean pigs. This young man can go no lower than this. He's degraded, he's humiliated, he's in misery. Maybe these self-righteous Pharisees would have said to themselves, well, serves him right. He deserved everything he gets. I wonder if sometimes we have that same attitude towards those who wander away from a good home or we look at the drunkard or the drug addict or somebody in jail and have a hint of self-righteous smugness. 
as those religious people must have had. I wonder how your attitude is towards sinners who are in a mess, who have brought it on themselves. Do you bring the gospel to them? Joel Beakey says, the attitude of our hearts to sinners being saved is a barometer of whether or not we have ourselves experienced the grace of God. Everyone condemned this lad, except the one he'd sinned against the most. No one had any time for him except for his father, who all the while he was away was waiting for him to come home. Can you imagine him even now at the window looking at the horizon where he saw him walk away? And I wonder perhaps if you have children somewhat like this who've heard the truth. They know the gospel. They've heard it so many times, but they've rejected it. They've rebelled. They're in sin. Disappointing. And perhaps you're scanning the horizon for any sign of them. Heartbroken. There's hope here in Luke chapter 15. Verse 16, he's so hungry, he's even tempted to eat the pig slop. No one gave him anything. Imagine how he must have felt. This is his own making the situation. He's at rock bottom. If only he'd stayed home. If only he'd been more sensible with his money, saved something for a rainy day. Things would have been better. See, there are those people who do have it all together in this life, who maybe have been responsible with their money. And look, look prosperous, but equally as lost, equally in need of a Savior. It's not just those that are at rock bottom. And verse 17 is where we find the turning in his thinking, his reasoning, his understanding about the character of his Father is what makes him change. He praises the situation. He examines himself. He comes to his senses. Literally came to himself. According to language scholars, this, this is a Hebrew-Aramaic expression for repented. The, he saw the reality of his disobedience. He turns for home in that picture of repentance. Beaky says it humbles a person, stripping away one's sense of deserving blessing while sustaining some hope of mercy. He says to himself that he'll return to his father. I'll admit my guilt. I'll apologize. I'll admit that I forfeited my right to be called your son. I'm not even worthy of that title. And he plans to ask his father if he can become like one of his servants, earn a wage. That's what he's hoping for. That's the best result possible. Verse 18, when he came to himself, he realized his sin, not just against his earthly father, but in the deepest sense against heaven, against God himself. And a key to all of this is to see the magnitude of your sin. We need to understand that too when we sin, however we do it, against whomever. It's always against God. And he does that rehearsal of, of what he's going to say as he walks home. What is the message? Well, Matthew Henry said, the wealth of the world and the pleasures of the senses will not even satisfy our bodies. A sinful state 
is a state of death. A sinner is dead in trespasses and sins, destitute of spiritual life. A sinful state is a lost state. Souls that are separated from God, if His mercy prevent not, will soon be lost forever. The prodigal's wretched state only faintly shadows forth the awful ruin of man by sin. Yet how few are sensible, aware of their own state and character. How many come to realize their true state like the younger son? And then he, then he challenges people. Do you recognize your sinfulness before God? You see, do you realize how disgusting and repulsive and, and debased and putrid sin is? Not just in the abstract, your sin. People all over the world wallowing in it, in it without God, rejecting God. Living for their father, the devil, on the broad road to destruction. And then we come to the dramatic scene in verse 20. Again, the father's evidently, habitually, looking out intently for his son's return. And he does five things. Look at the text. He saw him. He felt compassion. He ran. He embraced. He kissed. He doesn't wait on the porch, impatiently tapping his foot, saying, here comes that son of mine. After all he's done, there'd better be some real groveling. There's not a hint of that, no. He runs out when the son comes within sight of the house. He embraces him. It's the word for sprinting. It's undignified for an older man like that. Patriarch picks up his robes, bears his legs, and runs, casts aside all the behavioral conventions of, of the time and shames himself on behalf of this sinful son. He embraces him, literally falls on his neck, kisses him repeatedly. Maybe he's stunk of pigs. Doesn't matter. This is the part that made the Pharisees angry. Because this is how Jesus treats sinners with sheer grace. There's nothing else we can depend on, and, and they, just, they just don't get it. Verse 21, the younger brother tries to explain his plan. You remember, he's, he's, he's rehearsed this. But his father interrupts him and says, quickly. He'd started, but he didn't finish. He said, sorry. He repented. He'd indicated, I'm in debt. It's as far as he got. Father's already accepted him. What did he miss out? Look back at verse 19. This is what he missed out. Treat me as one of your servants. Never got there. We can't earn our way back to God through work. It's not possible. When we repent, God accepts us immediately. Not so that we can earn our way back into the family. No, fully welcomed, complete family members immediately, full privileges immediately. Just doesn't add up in the mind of the Pharisees. This is ridiculous. Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. He's being restored to the family. It's not, I'm going to wait until you've paid off your debt. Or you've sat on the naughty step for long enough. There is no way you can earn your own way back. I'm simply going to take you back. But not only that, I'm going to cover you with my robes. 
Verse 22 and verse 23, complete forgiveness, restoration. It's more than just forgiveness. He goes so much further. It's the best robe to be put on him. He's welcomed as an honored member of the family. Puts a ring on his finger. He's got authority. Puts sandals on his feet. He's a son, not a slave. All these were signs of position and acceptance. And the religious people listening would have been astounded at the welcome the father gave his son. who had been wronged so much. Ran to meet him in the most undignified manner. But you see, Jesus wants his audience at the time and us today to see that God is far, far more welcoming, far, far more gracious than their cold, unloving hearts could ever imagine. But imagine the other group, those sinners. What joy! Forgiveness is available. Look at the welcome of the Father after the mess I've made in my life. And there's a feast, huge event, steak, fattened calf, not just any calf, big deal, rare treat, special occasion, joyful. What a closing scene. Verse 24, the son was dead, but he's alive again. So the father gave his son this wonderful homecoming. Whatever he'd done, the prodigal was still his son. And everyone began to celebrate. And because the father was happy and everyone else was. Well, nearly everyone. So we've had the younger son. And I wonder if any of you see yourself in this young man. You know you're a rebel. And the, the point is you need to see the mess that you're in. And turn to the Father in repentance and faith, knowing that you deserve nothing. You need to turn. You need to cry out to God to work in you repentance and faith. And what this demonstrates is that salvation is open and available to the most wretched of sinners. Maybe you're a parent of a child who's in a far and distant country. There's hope here. It may require your child being humbled and broken. Don't stop praying. Don't ever stop praying. Don't stop peering out of the window at that horizon for any sign. Now Jesus turns the attention to another group, that other group listening that day. Father's got to deal with the older brother. They've even been challenged in the first part of the story, though, with their mindset being all wrong. God's love and forgiveness, you see, can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin and wrongdoing. doesn't matter what you've done. The younger brother received grace he didn't deserve. Jesus has shown this father going out to meet his son in love, not only before he has a chance to make amends and show he's changed, but even before he can come out with his pre-rehearsed speech. You see, this father's acceptance is completely free. And the son simply accepts it. And he's welcomed into the feast. And J.C. Ryle says, Let this boundless mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ be graven deeply in our memories and sink into our minds. Let us never forget that he is the one that receiveth sinners. With him, 
and His mercy. Sinners ought to begin when they first begin to desire salvation on Him and His mercy. Saints must live when they have been taught to repent and believe. Maybe the story should stop here. It's a great ending. But there's more to come. So we've seen that distant or disrespectful son, but don't miss all the way interwoven the devoted father. Faithful, loving, forgiving, gracious, sacrificial. But now let's look for a few minutes at the more neglected end of this narrative. The deceived son. The deceived son. Verses 25 through 32. And we remember who he's talking to that day when he first told this parable. He's addressed this group of so-called sinners. And now he turns to these others that think they're just fine. But they're deceived. Some commentators specifically point out here that this brother is in a much more dangerous position than the other. But he too is separated from the father. And obviously, we've, we've said the older son represents the religious. Those ones standing by, he's right in their faces, not holding back. And he's telling this story, remember, as a direct result of their attitude to him mixing with the, these folks down here, these sinners and tax collectors. And this elder, more responsible son, he stayed home. He was the good boy, they thought. He worked hard. Perhaps he thought he had a relationship with his father. Maybe he thought his father owed him something because of his work. Perhaps he thought he'd never put a foot out of place. Remember, he's telling this from their perspective. This is what they think the reality is. He'd never pastored his father for handouts. Never even asked for a young goat so that he could have a feast with his friends in verse 29. Never wandered very far away from his father's side. Always at the temple. Always doing their work. And perhaps we can imagine the Pharisees and teachers of the law identifying themselves with this, this nice young man. This older brother. We like him. Finally, someone who's talking sense. Someone who's righteously indignant at, at both the son and the father's actions. Because they, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing with sinners. They can't understand the way the Father behaves. They too lived lives which they thought were upright and pure, you see. Very proud of their loyalty to God. If anyone had suggested that they'd wandered away from God, they'd have been horrified. Always kept near to the temple. Obeyed the law of the Lord. Perfectly, many of them thought. But he's unmoved by his brother's return. Well, he was moved. He was angry. Criticizes his father. Doesn't understand grace and salvation. In his anger, the elder brother refused the love of the father that was offered to him. Verse 24, we find him working in the field, don't we? Comes near to the house, hears this music, and rejoicing calls one of the servants, asks him what's going on. Your brother has come, he's safe. Your father has killed the fattened calf. And, and that, that word safe, safe and sound, 
also in the original has, has the elements of peace in it. There's, this peace has come to the house. It's not just physical safety. In verse 28, he becomes angry, refuses to go in. And so, just as the father had gone out to greet the younger son, he now goes out and pleads with this legalistic older son. Again, he takes the initiative to restore this relationship. He wants to show how loving and gracious and forgiving and welcoming our Heavenly Father is. It also applies to those who, while they appear respectable on the outside, have have just as much wandered away from God as those who've committed dreadful, open, outward, scandalous sins. Notice God's initiating love. Notice how the Father comes out to each son, expresses love to them in order to bring them in. Verse 29, the elder brother complained bitterly to his father. I don't know, maybe we can see his pride and and selfishness in his words. Look, look, look you. It's not esteemed father or something similar to show due respect in that patriarchal society. All these years I've been slaving for you, serving you, never disobeying your orders, so he thinks. Remember, it's been presented from his point of view, yet you've never even given me the smallest of treats so I could celebrate with my friends. Verse 30, but when this son of yours, it's an interesting way to put it, not my brother, so full of all that he'd done, as he made all these accusations against his brother. Certainly true that he squandered his father's property. Sin has devastating consequences. There's no denying that. But he's, he's grumbling. And it's mirroring the grumbling of the Pharisees in, in verse 2. It's not fair. It's not right. I've worked myself to death. But my brother... I can't even use that word. This one, this group, they've done nothing, and you lavish this on them? Where's the justice in that? He sits and eats and welcomes tax collectors and sinners. He refuses to go in to probably the biggest feast and event the Father has ever put on, and he comes out and pleads with him. And he tenderly says in verse 31, my son, I still want you in the feast. Effectively, swallow your pride. Come in. The choice is yours. And you can imagine the listeners that day listening to Jesus, both sets on the edge of their seats at this point. Will the family be reunited? Will the brothers be reconciled? You know what? We're not told what happens next. That's where the story ends. Don't stop there. What happened? Did the older brother come around? Did he he storm off? Did he ignore the father? We're not told what the elder son did. These are the ones with the double portion of inheritance, close to God in the temple, close to the truth in the Scriptures which they read, which they taught, And yet never taking that word and applying it to themselves, to salvation, to personally knowing this God whom they'd tried to serve by their works, by their their system, but it was empty. 
And Jesus left His hearers, both these so-called sinners and these self-righteous people, with a question. And that's the point. These truths need to impact you, needed to impact them, and they needed to answer for themselves, where am I in this story? Where am I in this picture? Am I still lost? So close for these Pharisees and scribes, but so lost. And I wonder if you sit here in this building every week, so close, but so lost. What's your real relationship with God like? Do you truly understand the gospel, not just here, but here? Experientially, in your own life, has it been applied to you so that you are now in the family of God? In John MacArthur's book, The Tale of Two Sons, and also in his commentary on Luke, he he points to this cliffhanger we're left with. And in different ways, he considers all the different possible endings He sort of imagines the verse 33. He knows we can't add to Scripture. But he says, The older brother, realizing that even though he'd been around his father all his life, he's never had a true relationship with him, confesses his sins, repents, and his father welcomes him. And they both go into the celebration feast together. That's a pretty good ending. Is that you, though? Have you been around church but never found that relationship with God. And you need to confess your sin and humble yourself and repent and follow. And there'll be great celebration and joy. Well, we can't add to the Bible. We know that. This is left on a cliffhanger with a question for you intentionally. He's asking these scribes and and Pharisees, are you coming in? Because you would be welcome. He's pleading with his enemies, with these elder brothers. Respond, please respond. This so-called bad son, sinner, has come in. But the good son won't come in. The sinner is saved, but the moral religious man is still lost. And you can almost hear the gasps from the Pharisees listening to this. It's the opposite of everything they know still standing outside, much like they are with Jesus here, criticizing those on the inside, eating and drinking with Him and being saved, having ears to hear at the end of our previous chapter. So this is the question for you. Are you still outside? The younger son is clearly sinful. The older thinks he's obedient, but he's not. He's been controlled and disciplined all his life. One is bad by conventional standards, by the thought of the day. One is good, and yet both are alienated from the father who has to go out to invite both of them to come in. Two lost sons. Why doesn't the older brother go in? He says, because I've never disobeyed you. In his mind, it's it's not his sin that's the barrier. It's his so-called moral record and, and pride. And the brothers aren't all that different. They were both resentful of the father. They both wanted what the father could give them rather than the father himself. They both rebelled. They were both using the father for their own self-centered needs rather than loving and enjoying and serving him for his own sake, for who he is. 
This is Jesus radically redefining what's wrong with us in the minds of the people that day. It's not about a system. It's not about checking boxes. It's about the heart. It's about bowing the knee. It's about seeing your sin. It's about repenting. But we can see here that Jesus is telling those who have violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors that they can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most immoral person you can find in the gutter. So I wonder if you can see anything of yourself in the older brother, whether you go through the motions and your heart's not here. Do you have a real relationship with the Father? These Pharisees and scribes were so close, but so lost. Do you sit here in church every week? Are you a church member? Do you take communion? Do you stand to teach? doesn't matter. What is your real relationship with God like? That's why often in Scripture we're told to examine ourselves so that we don't reach that final day and be sadly lost forever. Our repentance must go deeper than just regret for individual sins. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. We must repent of what we've done wrong, but we must also turn and repent for the reasons we've ever done anything wrong, that we are fundamentally sinners, rebels. And we must trust fully in Jesus as Savior, not in anything we do. We need Christ to indwell us. We need repentance. We need to turn. We need to then follow in faith. So we've seen the distant or the disrespectful son. We've seen the deceived son. He's still outside. Both were lost, but only one has seen it. Only one has turned. And we've seen this devoted and patient and kind father. Three characters, only one who's faithful, faithful throughout. You see, we've got these three parables here. The shepherd going out and finding the sheep, then rejoicing. The woman finding the coin, then rejoicing. And we've got rejoicing at the end of the third one as well. There are obvious similarities. Every one, each one of them ending with, with joy. But those first two have somebody going and looking, going out. And the searchers let nothing distract them or get in their way. And in the third story, many point out that surely we'd expect someone to go out and find this prodigal. Who should have gone? Well, some commentators point to Cain and Abel. And Cain is told, you are your brother's keeper. A true older brother out of love should have gone out looking, even if it cost him personally. See, there's a flawed elder brother here who didn't go, should have been a shepherd. But all, all of these imperfect pictures, and we can't push them too far, but we should always be yearning, therefore, for a true older brother, a perfect older brother. And the one that we have in Jesus Christ didn't just come from the next country to find us, but he came from heaven to earth. He didn't just pay a finite amount of money. 
No, He gave the infinite cost of His own life to bring us into His family as a co-heir with Him, even though we deserve nothing. See, Jesus is the true older brother. He's provided the way. He was stripped naked of His robe and dignity so that we could be clothed with dignity and stand where we don't deserve. We can stand in His righteousness. We are brought in through that perfect older brother. And Jesus offends the Bible-believing religious people of the day, and He attracts the irreligious and outcasts. That's, that's the general pattern. There are exceptions, of course. But you see, many of those original listeners in that crowd that day weren't reduced to tears by this heartwarming story. Particularly on this side, they were shocked. They were offended. They were infuriated at the real message Jesus was delivering here. You see, the purpose of what he was saying was not, not to warm our hearts. It's to shatter everything we think. But you see, he brings hope in this message. Personally, as an offer of the gospel to you, but he also brings hope where you have someone in a far country that you're praying for. My encouragement to you is pray, pray, pray. One of our own dear church members died just last year, and her final wish was that we as an eldership would keep praying endlessly for her lost children. And we still don't know how those prayers will be answered. Maybe it needs affliction to bring them to their senses, to themselves, to God. But you see, there's hope here for the prodigal. Matthew Henry again says, We must not despair of the worst. For while there is life, there is hope. The grace of God can soften the hardest heart and give a happy turn to the strongest stream of corruption. You see, we have both the older and the younger brothers with us today. Many rebels, many non-religious sinners, they know it. Many accept they don't recognize God who, who He is. Many who even say there's no God. Deadly condition. But here in these parables, Jesus is really singling out religious moralism as a particularly deadly spiritual condition. It's the Bible's and therefore God's assertion that on the day of judgment, many professing, baptized church members who think they're just fine will come before God and He will say the terrifying words, away from me, I never knew you. It's a horrible and disturbing message. And in one way, I want you to go out of the doors this evening worried in the right sense and determined to know for sure that your faith is genuine. That you have the right ticket, not a fake. And that when you die, you will hear the best words ever. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we have to give this message in balance. Because you don't want to give people a lack of assurance. But it's a, it's a refrain in Scripture that you must examine yourself to see if your faith is authentic. Jesus is saying to these people who think they're just fine, and acceptable to God that they are not. Why, why do you think you're acceptable to God? On what basis? 
because you come to church, because you read the Bible, because you pray, you've, you've checked all the boxes, you live a good life. The Pharisees have got all of that and more. And yet they were lost. There's, there's nothing without true faith. Nothing you can do can make you acceptable to God. Unless you are relying on His Son, Jesus Christ, and His finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. Have you repented? Then you can have full assurance, living a life of faith, full confidence that you are saved. Then there's this homecoming feast at the end, you see. There's also one described at the end of all history in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Lamb is Jesus sacrificed for the sins of the world so that we, His people, His elect, could be pardoned and brought home. It's a beautiful picture. We have that to look forward to, believer. See, we don't know what happened in the parable next, but we can see what the Pharisees did next. Well, most of them. They plotted to kill Jesus. We do know how the Pharisees responded. We can finish the story. Because only a few months later, the Pharisees would kill Jesus, fully thinking they were doing the right thing. You see, Jesus took the shame for, sinners, for the sinner, like you and I, so that we wouldn't have to. And I hope God's Word is impacting you. And that's what the life-transforming Word of God should do. And so the question really is very, very pointed. Are you saved? Have you gone inside? Have you accepted the love of the Father? Accepted His invitation? Have you repented? Is there evidence of your faith in Christ through how you live? Through your relationship with the Father? Where are you? Are you an outcast? Are you outliving the wild and sinful life? Are you someone who's basically good, religious maybe? self-righteous, who has everyone fooled but God? Is your faith genuine? Have you experienced the grace of God? If you haven't, you can. That's the free offer of the gospel. If you come, you will be saved. And when you are saved, it brings great joy now and in that eternal celebration banquet to come. However you are lost, Wherever you are lost, this is the message to everyone. Come to your senses before it's too late. Come to Christ today. Come home. Come inside. See, God gladly receives repentant sinners. My plea to you is be found tonight. Let's pray. Faithful, patient, loving God, how we thank you for the gospel. None of us in this room deserve any of it. And yet for many of us, you have shown grace. You have forgiven. You have welcomed us in. Pray, Lord, that as believers, we would be encouraged by this 
that we would learn of you tonight, even in this passage, of your character, of your wonder, of your love for us, that our hearts might be warmed, that we would love you more, that we'd seek to serve you more zealously. Lord, we thank you that you are still saving sinners. Lord, we thank you that there are testimonies of those who have been in a far and distant country. There are testimonies of those who've caused their parents and grandparents much heartache, and yet you have reached out in your grace and mercy and saved them. And we pray that for many who may have someone on their minds even this night. Oh God, show grace again. Show mercy again, completely undeserved. Lord, we pray for any here this night who do not know exactly where they stand or perhaps do know that they are aloof from you, lost. Oh God, work miraculously this night to your honor and glory. Save again. Lord, we know that the gate of heaven stands open until Christ comes again. And we pray, Lord, that you would save many in this church, many in this community, many in our families, and that you would use us as a means to bring that good news of the gospel to others, as you did, using others to bring it to us. Bless as we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.